invite you to bow your heads with me as we begin with the word of prayer tonight. Our Father in heaven, Lord, thank you so much for your mercy and your grace and your love. Thank you so much that your love has drawn us to this place tonight. And Lord, we have come seeking to understand your word better, but more than just an intellectual understanding, we want to know you better, Lord. We want to have an experience with the living Christ. And so we pray, dear Lord, that your Holy Spirit would fill this room, that you would make your presence known tonight in our hearts in a real way, in a personal and intimate way. Lord, I know that Satan hates this message, and he's going to do everything he can to attack us tonight. But I pray, dear Lord, that you'd please remove every earthly and demonic distraction. Give us a mind that is focused, a mind that is engaged, and give us a heart that is soft and sensitive, teachable, humble, and receptive to this message. Lord, some of us are, are going to hear something that, that is going to blow us away. But Father, as long as it's from your holy word, help us to believe it, embrace it, and to follow it. Because we know, dear God, that we can trust your holy word. So please speak to us now through the pages of Scripture tonight and give us ears to hear what the Spirit has to say to us. This is our prayer. We thank you again for your love. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Our message tonight, entitled Revelations Night in Shining Armor, we're going to discover the secret about the secret rapture. I invite you to take your Bible and turn with me to Revelation chapter 12 as we begin our presentation tonight. We're going to Revelation chapter 12. And as you're turning there, let me tell you where I got the title from. What is this knight in shining armor we're referring to? Well, friends, the knight in shining armor is basically a heroic character that's found in a lot of romance literature set in the context of the medieval era. And these knights were characterized as courageous warriors of justice and mercy and nobility and honor and, and hope. And in these, th th this literature, it's depicted that these knights would go on quests to defeat dragons and scary monsters in order to save the damsel that is in distress. Many heroic deeds were done by these knights to win the favor of a specific lady. But tonight we're not going to talk about fictional fantasies, but rather the true biblical story of Revelation's knight in shining armor. And we're going to see a beautiful picture tonight. We're going to discover that the book of Revelation is actually a love story between Christ and his bride, which is the church. I want us to notice in prophetic language, in Revelation chapter 12, we find the description of a terrible monster, a dragon that is filled with anger seeking to destroy a woman. Notice what it, what it says. Revelation chapter 12, beginning with verse, with verse 13. And if you're there, would you please let me know by saying amen. And we're going to study this chapter in detail on a later night. But just notice with me this dragon who is attacking the woman. Revelation 12, 13, And when the dragon saw that he was cast unto the earth, 
he persecuted the woman which brought forth the man-child. So we find the description of a dragon attacking a woman that brought forth the man-child. Now, this dragon is none other than Satan himself. We studied that before, and if you weren't here for that, all you have to do is read verse 9. It tells us that the dragon is none other than the devil and Satan. And so this dragon is angry with this woman and wants to destroy her and persecute her. In fact, it's repeated in verse 17. Notice that with me, verse 17. It says, And the dragon was wroth with the woman and went to make what? War with the remnant of her seed, which keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. So we find the description of a damsel that is in distress, a woman that has been attacked by a terrible dragon, which is none other than Satan. Well, we know that the dragon is Satan. Who's the woman, friends, that Satan is seeking to destroy? Oh, friends, the consistent way the Bible interprets a woman in prophecy is none other than the church, the people of God. And you can write down these scriptures for the evidence. In Ephesians 5 and verse 25, the Bible tells us, Husbands, love your wives even as Christ also loved the who? The church and gave himself for it. We find that the husband-wife relationship was to be an object lesson of the relationship that Jesus, our heavenly husband, wants to have with us as his earthly church. This is the consistent symbol throughout the New Testament of God likening his people to that of a woman, and which simply means that this woman is the church. You can also write down 2 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 2. Jeremiah chapter 6 and verse 2. And there are many, many other passages we can show tonight that depicts very clearly that in prophecy, the woman represents the, a church. Now, this is important for us to understand because many people who study Revelation, they believe that the church of God is not found from Revelation chapter 4 to the rest of the book. But here it is, friends, in chapter 12. The church of God, the woman, is described. This is the beloved bride of Christ. And so what we need to do, friends, is simply let the Bible interpret itself. And we, we, can, we can trust with the message when we know it's the biblical interpretation and not a man's opinion or interpretation. So this symbol of the dragon attacking a woman simply represents Satan that is filled with anger against the people of God in the last days, the church of Christ. And friends, he's angry. He wants to destroy us. He's filled with wrath, and he seeks to attack us every single day. Has Satan been attacking you recently? He's been attacking your finances, attacking your health, attacking your marriage and your family. Maybe you've lost a loved one and your heart is broken and, and, or whatever it is, whatever the case may be, friends. There is a mighty enemy out there, a dragon. He is also a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour, and he is angry at us. He wants to destroy us in every single way of our lives. But here's the good news, friends. If he's attacking you, you must be doing something right. Because he's, he don't mind if, if we're on his side, he'll leave us alone. But it's when we are seeking to serve God and seeking after the Lord that, that the, the, the true tests and the true attacks of Satan come. And furthermore, the good news is that 1 John chapter 4, verse 4 tells us, greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. Amen? You see, Satan is mighty, but God is almighty. 
And he has won the victory over the, over the dragon. Can you say amen? We've studied that before. And another reason why we don't have to be afraid of Satan is because here comes the knight in shining armor to our rescue. You see, Revelation is a love story between Christ and his bride. The bride is being attacked by the dragon. Here comes her knight in shining armor. Let's read now Revelation chapter 19, beginning with verse 11. It's a description of the second coming of Christ. Notice what it says. Revelation 19 and verse 11. It says, And I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. What color was the horse? And he that sat upon him was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he doth judge and make war. His eyes were as the flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no man knew but he himself. He was clothed in a vesture dipped in blood, and his name is called, what is his name? The Word of God. Here we find in prophetic language the description of a heavenly warrior coming uh, to, to vanquish the enemies of the bride of Christ. This warrior is called faithful and true. He's a righteous judge. His eyes are like fire, which represents the penetrating discernment he has that makes him a just judge. His, on his head is a crown because he's not just a judge. He's not just a warrior, but he's also a heavenly king. He is the majesty of the heavens, and his name is called the Word of God. Well, friends, who exactly is this riding on the white horse? Who is the Word of God? It's none other than King Jesus. Amen? In, first, in John chapter 1, verse 1 to 4, it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God, and all things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. And then John chapter 1, verse 14 tells us that the Word was made flesh. And dwelt among us. We beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So, this word of God is none other than Jesus Christ himself. He is God and he's the word of God. And the description of him riding on this white horse is a symbol of his second coming in the clouds of heaven. You see, friends, the weapon he uses is the, is the, the it comes straight from his mouth. Notice what it says in the next verse, verse 14. And the armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses, clothed in fine linen, white and clean. And out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should smite the nations and shall rule them with a rod of iron. He treadeth the winepress in fierceness and wrath of Almighty God, and he hath on his vesture and on his thigh a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. So out of his mouth goes a sharp sword. That's the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. That's what Jesus uses to judge the wicked inhabitants of the world. You see, friends, either the Word of God is going to save us or it's going to end up judging us if we reject it. And that's why out of his mouth goes that sword that smites the nations. Now, friends, you have to understand that when, when the Bible describes Jesus Christ coming back the second time on a white horse, it's not because he's literally coming on a white horse. You see, the symbol of a king riding on a white horse was simply this. In history, whenever a king came riding on a white horse, it was the symbol that that king was coming as a triumphant king, a righteous king, and a conquering king. And that's the symbol we see here. This world has been hijacked by the dragon, by Satan. And so now the true king is coming to redeem it, to take it back. And the second coming of Christ is not going to be like the first coming. 
When Jesus came the first time, he came as a humble babe and as a suffering servant. When he came to Jerusalem that first time, he rode on not a white horse but on a donkey, symbolizing that he came as a suffering servant to die on Calvary's cross. But when he comes the second time, he's not riding on a donkey but on a white stallion. Why? Because he's coming as King of kings and Lord of lords. He's coming as the righteous, triumphant, conquering King Jesus. And I can't wait for that day. How about you? You see, friends, the reason why he's returning is to slay the dragon and to save the damsel that is in distress. He's coming to rescue his church. I was in India a few years ago, and I got the chance to do meetings there in that country, beautiful country. I love India. I love the people, and the, especially the food. Oh, it was so good. On our last day in India, we were heading to the airport and driving through the crowded streets of India. All of a sudden, I saw on the side of a road side of the road, this, this scene, I took this picture. It was a great commotion, a great crowd gathering, and then there was a man riding on a white horse. And I asked the driver what was taking place. You know what he told me? He told me that that man riding on that white horse was a husband going to pick up his bride. And that's what we see described here in Revelation, friends. Jesus is not just coming as a warrior and a judge and a king, but he's also coming as a husband to pick up the woman, his bride, the beloved church uh, uh, that he paid, he died on the cross to pay for their sins. He is a lovesick king coming for his bride. Isn't that a beautiful picture, amen? You see, friends, Revelation is a love story between Christ and the church, Christ and his beloved bride. You see, the groom longs to be with his bride face to face. And so as the bride is being attacked, he comes to her rescue. And notice what happens to, the, to her attackers. Notice in verse 19 of Revelation 19. It says, And I saw the beasts and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against him that sat on the horse and against his army. And the beast was taken, and with him the false prophet that wrought miracles before him with which he deceived them that received the mark of the beast and them that worshipped his image. These both were cast alive into the lake of fire, burning with brimstone. We're going to find out what that means in detail on a later night. Verse 21, And the remnant were slain. They were what? They were slain with the sword of him that sat upon the horse, which sword proceeds out of, out of his mouth. And all the fowls were filled with their flesh. So notice, friends, when Jesus comes the second time, all the wicked, those who belong to the Antichrist beast kingdom, those who are attacking the woman, the beloved bride of Christ, the church of God, it says that these are going to be slain. They're going to be destroyed by the coming of Christ. And then it says that the fowls are going to feast upon their flesh. That's very graphic, friends. This is the fate of the wicked. Notice verse 17. You can see it in your Bible. It's also on the screen. And I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried with a loud voice, saying to all the fowls that fly in the midst of heaven, Come and gather yourselves together unto the supper of the great God. So a great feast, a supper takes place. But notice what's on the menu. That you may eat the flesh of kings, and the flesh of captains, and the flesh of mighty men, and the flesh of horses, and of them that sit on them, and the flesh of all men, both free and bond, both small and great. So, interesting, friends, I want you to keep this in mind. When Jesus returns, the wicked are slain, and then the birds, the fowls of the air, begin to feast upon their flesh. That's a very graphic, graphic sight. But I want you to notice, here's the good news. At the same time that the feast of the fowls commences, there's actually another feast that commences shortly after that as well. 
and it's called the marriage supper of the Lamb. Let's read it in verse 7. Notice with me, Re Revelation 19, 7. It says, Let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to Him, for the marriage of the Lamb is come, and His who? His wife hath made herself ready. Don't you see, friends, Revelation is a love story. The Lamb is the husband. That's Jesus, the groom. And He is returning because the wife is ready. What makes her ready? Verse 8, To her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white, for the fine linen is the righteousness of saints. Verse 9, And He saith unto me, Write, Blessed are they which are called unto the marriage supper of the Lamb. And He said to me, These are the true sayings of God. And so, interesting, friends, when the Lord Jesus comes, the marriage of the Lamb takes place. That's the day when the husband sees his bride face to face and they're, they're going to be married together and live happily ever after. That's when Jesus returns to take us home, friends. We move in with him in his father's house. He's going to come to pick up his bride and we're going to move in with him in his father's house. Can you say amen? And when that happens, once again, there are two great banquets that takes place. The marriage supper of the Lamb or the feast of the fowls. Every single one of us is going to be a part of either one or the other. And friends, which one do you want to be a part of? It's a no-brainer, isn't that right? We want to be a part of the marriage supper of the Lamb. Amen? We don't want to be a part of the Feast of the Fowls. We want to be a part of that great banquet table, the marriage supper of the Lamb with Jesus. You see, friends, if we're a part of the marriage supper of the Lamb, we're going to be the main guest. But if we're a part of the Feast of the Fowls, we're not going to be the main guest. We're going to be the main course. <laughs> and I don't know about you, but I don't want any, any buzzard picking on me. Amen? And tonight we can be a part of the marriage supper of the Lamb when we choose to marry Jesus. When Jesus offers us that proposal on the cross, demonstrating His love and commitment to us. You see, on the cross, it was as if Jesus was saying to the human race, Will you be my bride? And all those who accept that proposal he made on Calvary's cross, all those who say, yes, I, I will, I do, he's going to come to take them home and will be with him throughout the ceaseless ages of eternity. Amen? Revelation is a love story between Christ and the bride, the church. And the wedding will take place when he returns. This is something that we can look forward to, friends. In fact, notice what the Bible says concerning the second coming of Christ. In Titus chapter 2 and verse 13, very beautiful verse, the Bible says, looking for that blessed hope. Amen? It's called a blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. It's not something that we need to be afraid of, but something we ought to look forward to with great joy and anticipation. This is the hope of every generation. When the Lord Jesus comes, it is a blessed hope. But friends, listen. With the coming of Christ, Satan is going to seek to deceive the bride, the church, the people of God. And for this cause, Jesus, when he came the first time, before he left, he gave some serious warnings to us to beware of the devil's deceptions in the last days. I want you to notice some of those deceptions Jesus told us to warn us, uh, Jesus warned us of. In Matthew 24, 4 and 5, Jesus said, Take heed that no man do what? <clears throat> deceive you. For many shall come in my name, saying, I am Christ, and shall deceive many. Jesus tells us that in the last days before he comes, there will be false Christs and false prophets that will come before claiming to be the Christ. 
And that's the reason why, friends, we need to make sure that we know the real Jesus, amen? We, 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 we need to make sure that before we say, yes, I'll marry you, that we're saying yes to the right person, the right Jesus, not an anti-Jesus or a counterfeit Jesus, but the true Jesus. We need to become acquainted with the real Jesus, and the real Jesus is made known by the Word of God. The written Word is a reflection of the living Word. The written Word reveals the living Word of God, Jesus Christ. And so Christ warns us, in the last days, false Christ will, will come. And then notice, in verses 26, he says, Wherefore, if they shall say unto you, Behold, he is in the where? Christ is saying here that if someone comes to you in the last days and tells you that, that, that he, that is Christ, is in the desert, do not go forth. Behold, he is in the what? Secret chambers. Are we to believe it? He says, believe it not. Friends, in this passage, Jesus is prophesying that in the last days, people will say false things concerning the manner in which the Messiah would return. If, if someone comes to you and says, Jesus has returned and he's in the desert, let's go see what he has to say. Or he's in the secret chambers, he's on CNN right now, giving an, an announcement. Jesus says, don't believe it. Believe it not. Christ is warning us, that there will be false teachings concerning how he would return that will be spread in the world by Satan in the last days. And friends, I want to submit to you tonight that for many people, unfortunately, the second coming of Christ will come upon them as an overwhelming surprise. Many people are not going to be ready for the second coming. Why? For the exact same reason many people were not ready for the first coming of Jesus. The Bible tells us, that Jesus came to his own, the religious people who have the scriptures. He came to his own, and his own received him not. And there is a few huge reasons why Jesus, when he came the first time, his people that had the scriptures missed his first coming. And here's one of the reasons, friends, is because the Pharisees and the scribes and the religious teachers, the pastors, theologians, and scholars of that day, they taught, they taught people the wrong thing concerning how the Messiah would come. They said that the Messiah would come in glory and majesty and set up an earthly kingdom and set them free from the power of Rome. And so many people were looking for a, a glorified Messiah, one that would, would give them earthly glory. And so the Pharisees, they misinterpreted the Scriptures and they taught the wrong thing about how Messiah would come. Number two, the second reason, all the lay people, all the church members, instead of studying the Bible for themselves, they were being spoon-fed by the theologians and the pastors and the scholars, and they just said, wow, these guys have the degrees. These guys spent many years in study, so if they say that this is how Jesus or the Messiah is going to come, then they must be right. But the tragedy was that the religious leaders were wrong, and as a result of the people not studying for themselves, most of God's people missed the first coming. And let me tell you, friends, history is being repeated right now when it deals with the second coming of Christ. We're going to see tonight very clearly that most of the religious world and the popular theologians and pastors and preachers of the world today are teaching the wrong thing concerning how Jesus is going to come back. 
and unfortunately multitudes of sincere, wonderful, loving church members are not studying for themselves. They're just reading the popular books of the day and thinking to themselves, if these men are saying it's true, then it must be true. But friends, I want to submit to us that the only way we can know truth is if we open up the, the Word of God. This is the truth. Can you say amen? And so we should never take a man's word for it. We need to study to show ourselves approved unto God, a workman that needs not be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. And let me remind us, friends, how do we find truth concerning any given topic? What we do is this, friends. We don't pick one or two verses in the Bible and build a whole doctrine on one or two verses. But rather, we get all the verses through, from Genesis to Revelation. We survey the whole Bible. We get all the cooperating verses on any particular topic. We put them all together, and we study to see what the entire Bible has to say. And when we do that, comparing Scripture with Scripture and letting the Bible interpret itself, it's then that truth emerges in a very clear way, too clear for us to be con confused by any of Satan's counterfeits. Are you with me on that? So we can't use one or two or three verses, friends. We have to see what the whole Bible has to say. And that's the reason why as you come to this seminar, we're sharing with you 20, 30, 40 scriptures every single night because we want to have a very thorough foundational understanding of what, the God, what God's Word says about specific topics. And the other reason is because really it doesn't matter what I say. All that matters is what the Word of God says. Can you say amen? And so with that foundation, how many of you... How many of you see the importance of knowing exactly how Jesus is going to come back? Do you think that's important to know exactly how he's, not just that he's coming back, but the way in which he's coming back? Do you see that as important, yes or no? How important do you think it is, friends? For some, it's going to be a matter of eternity. For if we do not know exactly how he's coming back, we just might end up following a false Christ or an antichrist thinking it's the true Christ. And so for the rest of our time tonight, we're going to ask the question, how will King Jesus return to pick up his bride? In what way will he come back? I want to share with you tonight five truths of how Jesus is going to come back. How many truths? five truths, and I hope you write them down. Truth number one of the return of Christ is that His coming is going to be a literal and a personal event. It's not going to be some type of mystical or spiritualistic coming. No, He is coming literally and personally. How do we know? Because the Bible tells us so. In Acts chapter 1, verse 9 through 11, please write it down. Notice with me on the screen. The Bible tells us this is when Jesus was uh, about to ascend into the heavens. The disciples were there watching, and the Bible reads, and when he had spoken these things, while they beheld, why they what? As he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their what? Out of their sight. And then notice. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven, as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, which also said, Ye men of Galilee, why stand ye gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus, which is taken up from you into heaven, shall so come, how? In like manner as you have 
seeing him go into heaven. So notice the, notice the words that are emphasized there. They're gazing, they're looking, they're seeing, they're watching Jesus Christ literally go up into heaven with their own eyes. The literal personal Jesus they saw go up and the angel says, why are you standing and looking? Don't you know that that same Jesus is coming back the same way? In other words, his return is going to be literal and personal. Just like creation and the cross was a literal event, so to the return of Jesus, the second coming, is going to be a literal event as well. It says this same Jesus, Christ is not going to send emissaries to pick us up. He himself is coming for his woman, the bride, the church. Can you say amen? And so truth number one concerning the coming of Christ, it's going to be a literal and personal event. And if that's clear and if that makes sense, would you please say amen? Now truth number two, write it down. The coming of Christ is also going to be a visible event. We will see it with our own eyes. No one is going to have to inform us about it because everyone is going to see it. Notice what it says in Matthew 24 and verse 30. Jesus prophesying about his return, he says these words. And then shall appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven. And then shall all the tribes of the earth mourn. And they shall, what everyone? See the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. So the Bible tells us that we're going to see the Son of Man. We're going to see Jesus coming in the clouds of heaven. It's going to be powerful. It's going to be glorious when he appears in the clouds. And then notice another one. In Revelation chapter 1 and verse 7, the Bible says, Behold, he comes with clouds, and most eyes shall see him. Oh, you have to correct me faster than that, folks. How many eyes shall see him? Every eye shall see him. There is no secret about the return of Christ. The Bible tells us clearly that every eye will see Jesus when he returns again. Notice another one. In Matthew chapter 16 and verse 27, Jesus speaking, and he says, For the Son of Man will come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and then he will reward each according to his works. So the Bible says that we're not only going to see him, he's also coming with the glory of his Father and with his angels. Those are the, 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 the angelic hosts, the armies of heaven that follow him on white horses. Jesus, when he comes, he's coming with every angel of heaven. This is not something we're going to be able to sleep through, friends. This is not something that someone needs to tell us about. We're going to see it happen. Now, friends, do you remember the, what happened when that one angel came and removed the stone from the tomb of Christ? The glory and the power of that one angel was so profound and so dramatic that it shook the earth. And that stone that, 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 that covered the tomb moved like a little pebble. And the guards, these Roman guards that were watching the tomb, they fell back and fainted like dead men. Now think about it. If the glory of one angel, one angel, one angel can have such an effect, can you imagine the glory of all the angels of heaven? That's going to be amazing. Can you say amen? It's not something we're going to be able to sleep through. It's something that we will see with our own eyes. And so that's truth number two. It's visible. Truth number three about the coming of Christ is that it's going to be an audible event. Not only will every eye see it, every ear is going to hear it as well. The Bible tells us in Psalms 50 verse 1, Our God shall come and shall not keep what? Silence. A fire shall devour before him, and it shall be very tempestuous round about. So the Bible tells us that when the Lord comes, he's not going to keep silent, friends. It's not going to be type, some type of secret coming or silent coming. It's going to be loud. It's going to be powerful. In fact, I want you to notice 
the loudest scripture in the Bible refers to the return of King Jesus. You will not find a louder scripture than this one in 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 16 and 17. Write it down. It's a beautiful verse. You ought to memorize it, in fact. It gives us so much hope. 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 and 17. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Friends, it's going to be so loud. The angels will be singing. The trumpets will be blasting. The Lord himself is going to shout, and it's going to be so loud that those who are sleeping in the graves are going to wake up, and they're going to pop up out of those sleepy graves. And then notice the next verse, verse 17. Then we which are alive and remain, those who live in the last days, shall be caught up together with them in the where? Clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. The Bible tells us when Jesus comes, it's going to be so loud, it's going to wake the dead. Then those who are alive will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Uh, note that very carefully, friends, that when Jesus returns, He's not going to step foot on the earth. We're going to meet Him in the air. Now, after the thousand years, He's going to come and step foot on the earth, and we'll study that more in detail uh, next week, Monday. But, 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 but for when He returns the second time, we're going to ascend to meet Him in the clouds, to meet Him in the air. And that's going to be a great day, friends. On that day, families that have been separated by death are going to be reunited in life. The dead in Christ are going to rise first. Like popcorn popping on a hot stove, graves are just going to burst open. Can you imagine that? We're going to ascend to meet the Lord Jesus in the air. And on our way up, notice what the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 15, 52, and 53. It says, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump, for the trumpet shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. You see, when the Lord Jesus comes, we're going to ascend to meet the Lord in the air, and as we go up, He's going to give us a brand new body. We're going to be changed. This corruptible mortal body that is subject to disease and decay and death is going to be renewed, a brand new body. No more aches and pains, no more headaches and heartaches, no more cancer or asthma or diabetes or osteoporosis or multiple sclerosis, no more uh, of these things that plague and back problems and, and whatnot. All these things are going to dissipate. It will be no more. Death itself is going to die. Those of you with eyeglasses, you can throw those away. Jesus will give you new eyes. Hearing aids, you can get rid of those things. Brand new ears, no more walkers or crutches or wheelchairs. A brand new body. You see, friends, sometimes we look into the mirror and we don't really like what we see when we look in the mirror. But friends, when we get to heaven, we're going to like what we see. We're going to have a brand new body. How many looking forward to your brand new body? Amen. Oh, what a day that will be, friends. Like the song says, what a day that shall be when our Jesus we shall see, when we look upon his face, the one that has saved us by his grace, when he takes us by the hand and leads us to the heavenly promised land. Oh, what a day. What a glorious day that will be. And those of you who've lost loved ones and your heart is broken, you can find great comfort in the fact that we'll see our loved ones again when the Lord Jesus returns. Amen. And so His coming is going to be loud. It's going to be vis visible. It's going to be audible. 
We're going to hear it. And then truth number four, it's going to be decisive. It's going to be what? What does that mean? It me simply means that the destiny of the human race will forever be decided by the time Jesus comes. It's going to be a decisive event. Now, some of you might be scratching your heads and wondering, but I thought that if you were not ready for the second coming, that, that there was going to be a second chance after the secret rapture. And many people have wondered that. They think that, you know, yeah, Jesus will come and He's going to rapture His saints, but those who are not ready are going to, and who are left behind are going to have another chance. Well, friends, I want you to remember that for every truth that God has, Satan has a counterfeit. For every single topic in the Bible, there is a truth concerning that topic, but there's also a counterfeit. And friends, remind me, what is a counterfeit? Something that looks real, seems real, sounds real, but it's fake. A counterfeit is truth and error mixed together. It's the same thing with this. There's, the, there's a truth about how Christ is coming, but Satan has invented a counterfeit teaching concerning the coming of Christ. And this counterfeit teaching is called the secret rapture. Many people believe in the secret rapture, that Christ will come secretly and silently and will rapture the church. People will vanish into thin air and their clothes are, are going to be there on the ground. And, and friends, let me just ask you a question. Based upon all the scriptures we read so far, does the coming of Christ sound secret and silent to you, yes or no? Oh, friends, there's anything but secret and silent. And so I want you to notice, friends, the place where most people get this idea of a secret rapture is not from the Bible, but from the Left Behind series and the books of popular theologians and scholars of the day. Now the, now, the Left Behind series, as we mentioned the other night, is a series of fictitious novels found in the fiction section of Amazon, fiction meaning not true, a fictitious series of novels outlining end-time events. And it's taught in these books that Christ will come silently and secretly to rapture the church. They're going to vanish into thin air. And that those who are left behind, those who are not ready for the secret rapture, are left behind to endure a seven-year tribulationary period, during the which they're going to have another chance to be ready for the third coming at the end of the seven years. And it's also taught in these books that during the seven years, the temple is going to be rebuilt in Jerusalem. The, an atheist, atheistic antichrist will sit in that temple, making a covenant with the Jews, causing the sacrifices in the temple to cease. And these series of books and movies have sold millions and millions of copies, and people are reading it as biblical truth. And while it may make for interesting reading, it makes for dangerous theology because we're going to see right now that there is no biblical foundation for what is being taught in these books. On, the only foundation is faulty assumptions coming from a very surface reading of the Bible and an inconsistent and faulty method of biblical hermeneutics that was actually invented by a Jesuit priest during the Council of Trent in the 16th century. I'm going to give you that history in just a moment. And friends, I want you to be clear in your mind tonight. If I speak strongly about this, it's because God loves us and He does not want us to be led astray by a counterfeit. He wants us to know what truth is. Can you say amen? And it's very important, friends, very important for us to know how Jesus is coming back. Remember the warning of Christ? He's, he said that if people say, behold, He is in the what? Secret chambers. Are we to believe it? Believe it not. And yet many people 
are believing that Christ is coming in some secret type of way, a secret rapture. And they're believing exactly what Jesus says, do not believe. And so now the next question is this, where do people get the idea of a secret rapture and a left behind a, ch a chance? They get it from the misunderstanding of just three verses in the Bible, three verses they use, pulling it out of the context to build a doctrine. I want to go through that with you right now, but before we do, I just want you to notice that the word rapture is not found in all of the Bible, much less will you find a secret rapture. Now, while the word rapture itself isn't in the Bible, the idea of a rapture is, because that word rapture means catching up or snatching away. And I'll be the first to tell you, friends, that I believe that there's going to be a rapture. Absolutely. There's going to be a catching up and a snatching away of the church. Yes, there's going to be a rapture, but it's not going to be a secret rapture. It's going to be a loud rapture, an audible, a visible, a glorious, and a powerful rapture. You see, the word rapture comes from this verse in 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 17. Here's where the word rapture comes from in the Bible. It comes from the loudest scripture in all of the Bible. It says, then we which are alive and remain shall be what? Caught up together. That word caught up, that's, that, that's the word rapture. We're going to be raptured, but notice that when we're raptured, the trumpets are blasting. All the angels are there. The Lord is shouting himself. And so, yes, there's going to be rapture, but not secret. And so then, where do people get the secret idea from? Well, they get it from this verse in 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 10. Please write it down. And let's see what the verse is really saying. 2 Peter 3.10 tells us, But the day of the Lord will come as a what? As a what? As a thief in the night. Many people read that verse and they stop right there and they don't read the, the rest of the verse. They don't read the verses before and after. And friends, whenever you do that, you're pulling it out of its context. And if you pull something out of context, you can make the Bible say whatever you want it to say. That's why we must study the Bible contextually. Line upon line, line upon line, here little and there little. But notice, friends, it says the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night. Now, the coming of Christ is like a thief in the night. Now, have you ever had a thief come in the night and break into your house and steal your goods? Have you ever had that experience before? It's terrible, isn't it? Have you ever been a thief and, and broken into someone's house in the night? <laughs> That's even worse. Unfortunately, I've been, I've been on both sides of those equations, and it's not good. And, and here's, the, here's the interesting thing, friends. When a thief comes to break in your house, that thief, does, does that thief always come secretly and silently? No, sometimes they make a lot of noise. But that thief always comes suddenly and unexpectedly. You never expect a thief to break into your house. And so when they do, it's sudden, it's unexpected, it's by surprise. And that's how the coming of Christ will be to most people. Not secretly and silently, but suddenly and unexpectedly. And by the way, it does not say that Jesus will come like a thief in the night. It says that the day or the timing of the Lord will come as the thief in the night. And those, when, when it actually happens, the timing of His return will catch people, many people, off guard. Now, in order to understand what this verse is saying, we have to read the rest of the verse. The rest of the verse says, in the which the heavens shall pass away with a great silence. With a great what? A great noise. And the elements shall melt with fervent heat. 
and the earth also and the works that are therein shall be burnt up. So yes, friends, the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, but it doesn't mean secretly and silently because there's a great noise that is taking place. So the question is, what does this really mean? We don't have to interpret it or speculate ourselves. We simply let the Bible interpret itself. Notice what Jesus said concerning his coming and the thief in the night. In Matthew 24, verse 43 and 44, please write it down. Jesus says, but know this, that if the master of the house had known what hour the thief would come, he would have done what? He would have watched and not allowed his house to be broken into. Therefore, you also be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour, at a timing that you do not what? You do not expect. That's what it means when it says the day is coming like a thief in the night. It means it will come suddenly at an hour or a time that we do not expect. But here's the next question. To whom will the coming of Christ be like a thief in the night? To those who are not watching for him to come. I don't know about you, friends. I plan on watching and waiting and praying for his return. Can you say amen? So it's not going to come upon us as like a thief in the night because, because we're going to be watching. It comes upon those who are not watching unexpectedly. And we can find that very clearly in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 4. Please write it down. 1 Thessalonians 5, 4 tells us, But you, brethren, are not in darkness, that that day should overtake you as a thief. You see, the day of Christ's return is not going to overtake us like a thief of the night because we're not in the darkness, we're in the light. Can you say amen? We're watching and praying and waiting for His return. Therefore, His coming is not going to be like a thief, but rather a husband coming to pick up His bride, the church of Christ. Can you say amen? Now, the day that I got married, both my wife and I, we could hardly sleep. We were watching and waiting, and we, were, we just could not wait to get married. It's the same thing with the church on earth. They're not going to be uh, falling asleep spiritually. They're going to be alert and awake because they just can't wait to get married to their heavenly husband, Jesus Christ. Amen? So it's interesting that the Bible here uses the word over, what is this right here? Take. In other words, those who are in darkness will be overtaken by that day. They're going to be taken, friends. Those who are not watching are, are going to be overtaken. And that word, overtake, reminds me of the other main verse that people use to try to teach a secret rapture theory. And that's the expression, one shall be taken and the other shall be left. Have you heard that before? That's where the title of the Left Behind series comes from. The expression where Jesus said, one shall be taken and the other shall be left, that is left behind. So let's find out what this really means. In order to do that, we have to read the context. So please turn with me in your Bible to the book of Matthew, chapter 24. Matthew, which chapter are we going to? Oh, friends, are you enjoying the study of God's Word tonight? Praise the Lord. Matthew 24, that's page 976. If you're using our seminar Bible, page 976, we're, Matthew, we're going to Matthew 24, begin with verse 40, where we find the famous expression, one shall be taken and the other shall be left. 
Notice what it, notice what it says, and I want us to, to also notice what it does not say. All right? So notice, Matthew 24, beginning with verse 40. If you're there, would you please say amen? The Bible says, this is Jesus speaking, and he says, Then shall two be in the field, the one shall be taken, and the other left. Two women shall be grinding at the mill, the one shall be taken, the other left. Watch therefore, for you know not what hour your Lord doth come. Many people have read those verses surfacely, and they have assumed, what word did I just use? Assumed that the one that is taken is the righteous, and that they're taken secretly and silently. And they've also assumed that the one that is left are the wicked, and they're left behind with a second chance to get ready. But tell me, friends, in the verse and in the context, does it say that the one that is taken is saved and is taken secretly and silently? Yes or no? No, friends. Does it say that the one that is left is lost and left with a second chance? Yes or no? No. And so, friends, here's the point. We can't read into the Bible that which is not there. That would be adding to the Word of God, and that is a dangerous thing. It's just not there, friends. And so we need to find out now what Jesus means when he says, the one shall be taken and the other shall be left. We're going to ask the question, who is taken and who's left? Where are they taken and where are they left? But before we answer that from the Word of God, let me just ask you, how many of you want to be taken? Let me see your hands. How many of you want to be left? Let me see your hands. How many of you don't know what you want? Let me see your hands. <laughs> not, all of you, not all of you are participating tonight. Let me ask again. How many of you want to be taken? Let me see your hands. Are you sure you want to be taken? <laughs> well, let's find out if we really want to be taken, shall we? So the question is this. Listen carefully, friends. We're going to break, through, break this down step by step. We're going to ask the question, who is taken, the righteous or wicked? And where are they taken? And then we're going to ask, who's left, the righteous or wicked? And where are they left? To answer that, all we have to do is read the context of the passage we just read. The previous verse, before Jesus said, one taken, other left, here's what he says. In verse 37, you can see it in your Bible, it's also on the screen. Jesus said, But as the days of Noah were, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. You see, before Jesus said the famous expression, one taken, the other left, he placed it in the context of the days of Noah. He's making a parallel. Christ said, just as it was in Noah's day, and the, the flood, and how it destroyed the world, and all that. That's how my second coming is going to be. Now, here's a question. When you think about what happened during the flood, was Noah and his family raptured out of the flood? Yes or no? No, friends. God did not take them out of the flood. They were in the flood, or I should say they were in the ark, but they went through the flood, but they were preserved during the time of the flood because they were in the ark. In the same way, God is not going to rapture His church out of tribulation. 
the church is going to go through tribulation, but they're going to be preserved during that time period because they are in Jesus Christ. In fact, if you look up every time the word tribulation is found in the New Testament, it's always in the context of the church going through tribulation or in tribulation, but they're preserved and protected, and they have hope in the midst of that tribulation. Never do you find the, the church taken out of it, friends. They're always in it, but they're preserved in it, just like Noah was in the flood, but preserved. Now, what about the wicked? Were they left behind with a second chance when the flood came? No, friends, when that flood came, the wicked were lost. Probation was closed upon them. Jesus is likening the story of the flood to that of His second coming. And so here's the question I want to ask uh, right now. Who was taken and who was left in Noah's day? Who was taken in Noah's day? The righteous or wicked? And who was left in Noah's day? The righteous or wicked? Well, friends, let's not answer that ourselves because we could be wrong. Let's allow Jesus to answer that question because He's always right. The very next verse, verse 38, Jesus tells us who's taken and who's left by the flood. Notice what it says, Matthew 24, 38 to 40. For as in the days that were before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered into the ark. Who is they that, that, that Christ is referring to that is eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage? Was it the righteous or the wicked? Well, it's the wicked, of course, those who are living their lives carelessly and casually and, and not concerned about the coming flood. They just continue to live life as though nothing serious was going to happen. Jesus said they continued to do this until Noah entered into the ark. And then notice what it says. And knew not. Who did not know the, the timing of the flood? It was the wicked. It says they knew not until the flood came and took them all away. Who was taken when the flood came? It was the wicked, friends. Those who knew not. To them, the flood came, as it were, like a thief in the night. Suddenly and unexpectedly, they knew not until the flood came and took them all away. Then the application comes. Notice, here's the, the context. So shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. Then shall two be in the field. The one shall be taken and the others shall be left. But friends, contextually, taken refers to the wicked who knew not. In other words, in this passage, taken is negative. Why? Because it simply means they were overtaken. They were overcome. Not taken in the sense that they were taken to some location, but taken in the sense that they were overtaken, overcome, overwhelmed, or destroyed by the flood. The flood came and took them all away. And just in case we might think we're reading it wrong, let's see what Luke had to say about it. Here's the parallel passage in the Synoptic Gospel of Luke, chapter 17, verse 27. The Holy Spirit inspired the, uh, the Dr. Luke to pen that same verse in a little different way. It says, the flood came and what? Destroyed them all. So Matthew says the flood came and took them all away. Luke says the flood came and destroyed them all. Why? Because to be taken and to be destroyed in this context is synonymous. They were taken and destroyed. Not taken to heaven, friends. Not taken and saved. They were taken, overtaken. They were destroyed by the flood. And so the, the wicked were taken and destroyed by the flood. 
Therefore, who was left? Who was left behind, friends? It was the righteous. They were left behind, not in the sense that they were left behind and lost, but in the sense that they were the survivors of the flood. Not in the sense left behind and lost. No, they were left in the sense that they went through it and they survived it. They were the they were the ones that experienced salvation, friends. So in this context, taken is negative. To be left is positive. And over and over again, we find the word taken used this way in the Bible when it refers to the second coming. Notice another one. In 2 Peter chapter 2 and verse 12, listen carefully. 2 Peter 2, 12, it says, But these, as natural brute beasts, made to be what? Taken and destroyed speak evil of the things that they understand not and shall utterly perish. Many times, friends, taken is in the negative. It means overtaken, taken to be destroyed. Notice another one. In 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 8, it says, And then shall that wicked be revealed, whom the Lord shall consume with the spirit of his mouth, and shall, what is this word right here? With what? The brightness of his you see, the second coming of Christ is going to be so bright and powerful and glorious that the wicked are going to be destroyed, consumed by the brightness of His coming. They're going to be overtaken by it. They're going to be overwhelmed by it, friends. That's what it means. Does that sound like a second chance to you? No, friends. By the time Jesus comes, probation is closed. No such thing as a second chance after the glorious rapture of the Lord Jesus Christ. But maybe we're reading it wrong. Maybe we just got it all wrong. And so let's compare what we just discovered with the synoptic gospel of Luke, chapter 17, verse 34 through 36. And we're going to nail this down very clearly tonight. Luke, chapter 17, 34 to 36, is the parallel uh, account of the famous expression, one shall be taken and the other shall be left. And notice what Luke says, quoting Jesus. I tell you, in that night, there shall be two in one bed. The one shall be taken, and the other shall be left. Where were they? They were in bed. One taken, the other left. It continues. Two shall be grinding together. Where are they? They're at the mill, grinding together. The one shall be taken, and the other left. Two shall be in the where? They're in the field. The one shall be taken and the other left. They, the disciples, answered and said to him, Where, Lord? Now, friends, I want you to not miss this. As the disciples are asking Jesus, Where, Lord? They're either asking, Where are the taken taken? Or they're asking, Where are the left left? That's what they're asking. Where, Lord? Where what? They're either asking, where are the taken taken, or where are the left left? Now, which one do you think they're really asking about? Are they, are they wondering about the taken, or are they wondering about the left? Think about it, friends. They have to be asking about the taken. You know why? Because it's already clear where the left are left. They are left where they were to begin with, at, in the field, in the bed, at the grinding mill. So it's obvious where the left would be left. They're left where they were to begin with. So therefore, this question, where, Lord, has to be referring to where are the taken taken. And if that's clear, would you please say amen? amen. 
And guess how Jesus answers it. Where, Lord? Here's his answer. Verse 37, where there is a dead body, there the vultures will gather. That's the feast of the fowls we read about in Revelation 19. Where are the taken taken? Where there's a dead body, there the vultures will gather. In other words, to be taken means to be overtaken, overcome, and then to, and then to be eaten by the birds, friends. That's graphic. But that's what the Bible teaches it's interesting, friends. Many people want to be taken. We don't want to be taken. <laughs> In fact, notice a few more verses to nail it down even more clearly. In Matthew 13, verse 30, Matthew 13, verse 30, the parable of the wheat and tares. You remember this parable? The wheat represent the righteous. The tares represent the wicked. And I want you to notice what, who Jesus deals with first when he returns. Matthew 13, 30, in the time of the harvest, I will say to the reapers, gather ye together first the what? Tares, and bind them in bundles to burn them, but gather the wheat into my barn. Who does God deal with first? The tares. That's why Jesus always says, one shall be taken, the other shall be left. It's not one shall be left and the other shall be. It's always the taken, then the left. In this, the first ones he deals with are the wicked, the tares. They are taken. They are overtaken and destroyed. Now, what, what, who does he deal with next? In verse 41 to 43, the Son of Man shall send forth his angels, and they shall what? Gather out of his kingdom all things which offend, and them which do iniquity, and shall cast him into the furnace of fire. That's those who are taken. They're gathered out. They're overtaken. Then shall the righteous shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. It's the righteous that are left. They're left shining forth. Not in the sense that they're left in this world, but they're left in the sense that they overcame. They are the survivors of the return of Jesus. Notice another one, even clearer. In Genesis chapter 7, verse 23, talking about the days of Noah, who was left in Noah's day? It says, And every living substance was destroyed which was upon the face of the ground, and Noah only, what? Remained alive. And they that were with him in the ark, who was left during the days of Noah? It was the righteous. They are the ones that survived that ordeal. Notice another one, Isaiah 24, verse 6. We can go on and on and on tonight. Therefore hath the curse devoured the earth, and they that dwell therein are desolate. The inhabitants of the earth are burned, and few men, what? Once the wicked are burnt up, few men left. Those who are left are the righteous, and they overcame. They're not burnt up by the coming of Christ. They're ready like a wife waiting for her husband. Notice one more, Isaiah chapter 4, verse 2 and 3. In that day, speaking about the second coming according to the context, in that day shall the branch of the Lord be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the earth shall be excellent and comely for them that are escaped of Israel. And it shall come to pass that he that is what? Left in Zion, and he that remains in Jerusalem shall be called holy, even everyone that is written among the living in Jerusalem. And we know that this, uh, this applies uh, in the last days. It applies spiritually. It's the new Jerusalem, the heavenly Zion. They are the ones that are left in the sense that they survived it and they are saved in the kingdom of Christ. 
And so now after going through all those scriptures, there's more we can share, but we don't have the time. But let me now ask you the question I asked you beforehand. How many of you want to survive the second coming of Christ? Do you want to survive the second coming of Christ? So therefore, how many of you want to be left? Amen, I want to be left. You thought you would never say that, isn't that right? <laughs> Friends, it's amazing. It's amazing how Satan has just switched the truth around. And he has caused many sincere, wonderful Christians to believe the exact opposite of what the Bible clearly teaches. And why do they believe it? Because of, instead of studying the Bible, the source, they're reading the books of evangelical authors and, and famous scholars, the Left Behind series, and they say if they say it, and if they've got the degrees and spent all the time studying, then it must be true. It's not, friends. And that's the reason why I appeal to you on behalf of Christ tonight. Study the Bible for yourself and don't ever take a man's word for it. You have to search the whole Bible. Look up all the verses, not just one or two or three. Get all the verses from Genesis to Revelation, the cooperating verses, put them all together, compare it with itself, read it contextually, read it comparatively, and it's only then that we're going to know the truth, and when we know the truth, the truth shall make us free. How many of you are thankful for the truth tonight? And so, truth number four, the coming of Christ, decisive event. There is no such thing, friends, as a second chance theory. By the time Jesus comes, probation closed. Therefore, before he comes, we must make a decision to get ready. A few more verses on that. Revelation 22 verse 11 makes it clear. The Bible says, he that is unjust, let him be unjust how? Still. He who is filthy, let him be filthy. Still. He who is righteous, let him be righteous. Still. And he who is holy, let him be holy. Still. And behold, I am coming quickly. So notice, friends, interesting, that, that, that as Jesus is coming, whatever condition you are in by the time he comes, you will remain in that condition. How? Still. Probation closes. You can't change conditions, friends. It's done. It's finished. Probation closes. And, it, and there's only two categories, friends. It's either we are unjust and filthy or we are righteous and holy. There's no middle ground. It's either we're going to be saved or lost. Either we're going to be righteous and, uh, excuse me, unjust and filthy or righteous and holy. I want to be counted amongst the righteous and holy ones. How about you? But friends, listen carefully. The only way we can be counted amongst the righteous and holy is if we've accepted the righteous and the holy one in our hearts. Because naturally, we are unjust. Naturally, we are filthy. There's nothing we can do to change our condition. The only thing we can do is accept the one that is righteous and the one that is holy into our hearts. And when we let Jesus, the righteous one, the holy one, come into our hearts, he will do for us what it's impossible for us to do for ourselves. He will make the change and transformation in our lives. Can you say amen? Now, how can we be made righteous and holy? Oh, friends, I want to show you this is so beautiful. As it was in the days of Noah, so shall it be also in the coming of the Son of Man. The life-giving message of Noah's day is the same life-giving message of today. What was the message in Noah's day that, that brought salvation? That if they heard it and heeded it, they would have been saved? It was very simple. Get 
on board the ark. Isn't that right? Very simple. If they heard and heeded that message, get on board the ark, they would be saved. They just had to get in the ark. And friends, when the flood came, that ark, that boat floated. Do you know why? It's not because Noah was, a, was an awesome carpenter. It's because God is the one that preserved that boat. Can you say amen? And it's interesting, when you look at the ark, there was no rudder, there, there was no oars, there was no uh, sails, there was no motor, which shows us that those who came on the ark, they could not save themselves. They couldn't oar themselves out of the waves. They could not lift up the sail and try to get out of the situation. Those in the ark, the only thing they could do was abide in the ark. In the same way, friends, we can't save ourselves. You know, naturally, we want to be in control of our own lives. Isn't that right? Naturally, we want to get on a boat that has some sails and some oars and a, a motor so that we can steer it and guide it where we want it to go. But no, friends, when it comes to salvation, we have to let God be in complete control of our lives. Amen? And all we do is abide in the ark representing Christ. Another beautiful thing about this, another reason why the ark floated is because God told Noah to overlay that ark with pitch on the inside and on the outside, to seal all the cracks in the wood, to overlay it with pitch. With what? And that pitch is what sealed the cracks and caused the boat to float. Friends, do you know what the word pitch means in Hebrew? That word pitch that covered the ark, that protected God's people, the word pitch in the Hebrew literally means atonement. What does it mean? Those who are covered in the ark of atonement were saved during the flood. The same life-giving message of salvation back then is the same life-giving message of today. The message of salvation today is get in the ark of the covenant, in the most holy place of the heavenly sanctuary where Jesus as our high priest ever lives to make intercession for us. In the ark of the covenant where we receive full atonement at one meant. Friends, the message today, get in the ark and you'll be saved. Amen? Because that's the secret place of the Most High, to abide under the shadow of the Almighty. A thousand shall fall at thy side, ten thousand at thy right hand, but it shall not come nigh unto thee. Neither shall any plague come nigh thy dwelling, not because you're out of this world. No, you're in it, but you're preserved because you're in the ark by faith. You're abiding under the atonement of the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, friends, I want to be in the ark. How about you? Amen? Amen. Oh, the Bible is so deep and so beautiful. It points us to the hope we have in Jesus. Now, after sharing all that, how in the world can people believe in a secret rapture theory and a left-behind theory? It's just not there, friends. But how is it that many sincere, wonderful Christians have been confused by it when the Bible is so clear? And here's the reason I want to share it with you. The secret rapture left behind theory comes from a faulty method of interpreting the Bible. In the world today, there are three main prophetic views of interpretation. This is your hermeneutical key 
of how you read and study the Bible. And there are three different views. Each view brings you to a different conclusion. There is preterism, which is the understanding that everything in prophecy has already been fulfilled in the past. Those who hold this view called preterism, can you say that word? They say, oh, you don't really have to study Revelation. It's already been fulfilled in the past. It's not relevant for us today. That's preterism. Then you have another view called futurism, where they say that everything in Revelation is in the future. From Revelation chapter 4 onward is after the rapture. We're not going to be here anyway, so it doesn't really matter if you understand it or not. That's futurism, and it's futurism which is the foundation of the Left Behind series and modern evangelical theology. Futurism. Everything will be fulfilled in the future. It's not really important because we're not going to be here. That's what they say. And then you have a third option, which is called historicism, which is the understanding that, that, that prophecy has been fulfilled partially in the past, partially being fulfilled in the present, and partially will be fulfilled in the future. Each one of these schools of interpretation brings you to different conclusions. Now, friends, which one is the right one? Well, we don't have to guess and just pick which one we like the most because God Himself told us which one is the correct one? In the very first chapter of Revelation, he tells us the nature of the book and how the prophecy is given out. Notice what it says, Revelation 1 verse 19. It says, write the things which thou what? Hast seen. What tense is that? Past. The things which are, what is that? Present. And the things that shall be hereafter. That's future. So friends, which is the correct biblical method of hermeneutic? It's not preterism, not futurism, but it's historicism. And friends, would you like to guess which one we're using here at the Revelation of Hope Bible Prophecy Seminar? We want to use the one Jesus told us to use. Can you say amen? And when we use that one, we will come with the correct interpretation and understanding of His message. You see, this is important. You know why? Because this is the foundation. When you have a faulty foundation, your theological house will crumble. A house is only as strong as its foundation. A wrong premise will lead to a wrong conclusion, and that's the reason why the left-behind secret rapture theory falls like a house of cards because it's built upon the sinking foundation of futurism. And so what was really left behind? It was the truth that was left behind. What is the secret about the secret rapture? The secret is that it's a lie, friends. And it's a terrible lie that many people have believed. This is new theology, friends. Many sincere people believe it. How did it, how, how did it become so popular? Now let me give you the history. Where did, who invented futurism? It was during the Reformation of the 16th century that it took place. You, you check me out, friends. Look, look at it. Look up, look this up for yourselves. During the 16th century, during that, those times before that time, I should say, Christians were using the biblical method of interpretation, historicism, in their understanding of studying prophecy in the Bible. And they began to teach that the, that the medieval church, the papacy, was the fulfillment of certain prophecies. And many people were leaving the church because of the corruption that crept within. And thus to counter this great reformation that was taking place to counter the reformation, there was a council of church leaders that convened in Trent, Italy. It's called the Council of Trent. 
And their, one of their main agendas during that council that lasted for a few years from 1545 uh, to uh, 1563, during that, during that council, one of their main agendas was to wipe out what they called heresy. And there was a Jesuit priest by the name of Francisco Rivera. What was his name? R write that name down, friends. Look it up. He was a Jesuit priest by the name of Francisco Rivera. He is the one that invented a different school of interpretation called futurism, where he put everything in the future, thus steering attention away from the church. And futurism, invented by a Jesuit priest, found its way into Protestantism. How? There was another Jesuit priest by the name of Emmanuel Lacunza. He was posing as a Jewish rabbi under the pen name Juan Josapha ben Ezra. And this Jesuit priest wrote a book entitled The Coming of Messiah in Glory and Majesty. This book was then translated by a Protestant by the name of Edward Irving. And it, the teachings of this, which is basically what the Left Behind series teaches, found its way into the Schofield Study Bible, the Cyrus Schofield Study Bible notes. And people read this, the notes, the commentary, thinking that it was real. And thus, Tim LaHaye and, and, and many others have gotten this theory. When he traced it back, it goes all the way to a Jesuit priest that invented it in order to counter the Reformation. It's not found in the Word. And friends, let me just explain why I'm emphasizing this so much and wanting to make it clear. Why is the secret rapture theory so dangerous? Because it leads people to a false sense of security, friends. They think that they're going to have a second chance. People take spiritual things lightly. They think to themselves, oh, if I don't make the secret rapture, oh, I'm thankful that I'll have another chance after that. I'll, so I'll, I'll, take, I'll take my chance the second time. That's exactly what Satan wants people to believe. Or people think to themselves, you know, I'm going to live it up. I'm going to party and have a good time and just enjoy the world. And then when the secret rapture happens, I know that I have seven more years to have a good time. And then at the end of those seven years, then I'll give my life to Christ. And I can have fun in the world and still go to heaven. And that's exactly what Satan wants you to believe. Because those who are banking on that are going to be lost, friends, when they find out that there is no second chance after the coming of Christ. This false doctrine of the secret rapture, second chance theory, lures people into a carnal, carnal sleep of false security. You see, friends, we have already received our second chance, our third chance, our fourth chance. Every day that we wake up in the morning, God gives us another chance to get ready. Every moment of every day, while we have breath, while we have life, while the blood is flowing warm in our veins, is another chance to get ready, get ready, get ready, because Jesus is coming again. Can you say amen? The Bible says, behold, now, today is the day of salvation. Now is the accepted time. The Bible says, choose you this day whom you will serve. Every day Christ is pleading, calling us to get ready while the door of the ark is still open. But if we persist in going our own ways and ignoring his voice, he will return and his coming will be like a, a thief in the night, suddenly and unexpectedly. You see, there is no security in a non-existent second chance. No security in the words or teachings of popular theologians. 
No security in our large bank accounts, in our retirement plans and stockpiling arms. No security in church membership or moral uprightness. There's only security in the ark, Jesus Christ. And today he's inviting us to abide in him. Won't you come and abide in him tonight? Amen. Last truth as we close. The coming of Christ is not just literal and personal, not just visible, audible, and decisive. Number five, it's a glorious and a joyous event. Oh, it's going to be a happy day. Let me read these scriptures in Isaiah 25, verse 9. It shall be said in that day, Lo, this is our God. We have waited for him, and he will save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him, and we will be glad and rejoice in his salvation. It's going to be a happy day, a day of rejoicing. Why? Because we will re reunite with our loved ones that have passed away. Families separated by death are reunited. Babies who have died in their infancy placed back into their parents' arms. Oh, can you imagine the joy that we will experience seeing our loved ones once again? I'll never forget when I got married about 10 years ago. It was the happiest day of our lives, my wife and I. And we had a specific time in mind that we're going to get married, September 4, 2005, 2 o'clock in the afternoon. And great preparations had been made for this special event, our wedding day. The invitations went out. The food was prepared. The decorations were set up. And, and we were there, ready and waiting. And, and I was there, 2 o'clock. You, you can be sure I was on time. I was ready to get married. 2 o'clock was the appointed time. But we didn't get married until 2.45, 45 minutes late. You know why? Because the wife was not yet ready. <laughs> oh, but you know what they say, better late than ever. And I remember w seeing her walk down the aisle for the first time in that wedding dress. Oh, the joy I had, the anticipation seeing my wife walk down that aisle. It, 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 I can just imagine how Jesus feels. You know, Jesus is ready. He wants to come back. But the reason why he's not yet come back is because the wife, the bride, the church, you and I, perhaps are not yet ready. And he's given us time to get ready, given us time to put on our wedding dress, the righteousness of Christ. And you can imagine Jesus is just so anxious. He wants to see us face to face. He wants to be with us, friends. He longs for the wedding. He's waiting for us to get ready. And we got married. Took this picture with my wife's parents, my mother-in-law and my father-in-law. And after this picture was taken a year later, my father-in-law was diagnosed with stage four cancer. He was only 51 years old, young, stage four. By the time we found the cancer, it was already eating away at his bones all over his body. He had months to live. He spent most of his life drinking and smoking. He was an alcoholic and a chain smoker, and, and it finally caught up to him. And it was too late by the time we found the disease, the cancer. And even though my father-in-law had wasted many years doing foolish things, in his final days, final weeks, in the hospital bed, Barely could breathe, barely could talk, just suffering so greatly. My father-in-law found that there is a, a chance in Jesus 
a second chance, if you would, to live. And he cast his wretchedness upon the righteousness of Christ. He asked God to forgive him. He received the peace of forgiveness and assurance. And even though he died a few weeks after that, my father-in-law died with the blessed hope in his heart that Jesus is coming and he's going to receive a brand new body. And my wife and I, my family, we have the hope of seeing our, our dad once again with a body free of cancer and disease. Yes, friends, that's the hope we have. Jesus saves. Even in the nick of time, like the thief on the cross, Jesus saves. The king is coming. I want to be ready. Do you want to be ready? If the sky was to split open right now, if Jesus was to come right now, friends, let me ask you, are you ready for him to come? Are you sure? Or are you sitting here tonight with an unsurrendered heart? Maybe tonight you're still holding on to doubts and unsurrendered sins. Tonight, I'll invite you to let go of whatever is holding you back and let God take control of your life. Jesus wants to see you face to face. Your husband, we his bride. If you want to be ready for the coming of Christ, I want to invite you to bow your heads and close your eyes. And I invite you tonight that you would search your hearts as hope sings this song of hope tell Jesus in your heart Lord whatever is hindering me from being ready I surrender it to you tonight Lord I let go and I want you to take control of my life as your heads are bowed and as your eyes are closed I want to make a special invitation to your heart tonight Maybe this evening as you've learned about the return of Jesus and you look into your own heart, you see that perhaps there's something that is robbing you of that blessed assurance of your readiness for His return. Maybe some cherished sin, maybe some secret doubt. There's something that is holding you back something you that is hindering you and tonight you want to surrender that to Jesus and you want to say yes Lord I want to be ready for your return do whatever it takes to make me ready if you'd like to surrender your life to the Lord Jesus tonight and receive the blessed assurance the blessed hope I would invite you to stand to your feet where you are as we close with prayer, if you'd like to make that decision for the first time or in a recommitment, would you stand? God bless you. By standing, you're saying yes to Jesus. I want to be ready for your return. Father in heaven, Lord, we stand not because we are strong. We stand because we recognize our weakness. We recognize our unworthiness. We recognize our sinfulness. But at the same time, we also recognize your righteousness, your worthiness, your readiness. And Lord, we invite you to come into our hearts right now. 
Forgive us, Lord, for the things we have allowed to distract us from the wedding. Forgive us, Lord, for the things we hold on to that hold us back. Tonight, dear God, we let go. And we ask that you take control of our hearts. We want to see you in peace, dear God. We don't want to be overtaken. We want to be left. We want to be the survivors. We want to be your bride. So make us ready is our prayer. Teach us what that means as we continue to come night after night. And as we leave tonight, may we leave with peace. Bring us back tomorrow as we continue this wonderful journey in truth. In Jesus' name we pray. Let the bride of Christ say, Amen.